0: Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, And together, discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hi, this is Dr.
1: Stan Landau, and I'm joined, uh, as always, by Michael Brown. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Remember that you can follow us on Spotify and Anchor, amongst other social media platforms. If you like this podcast, give us a like, share it amongst your own network, and we'd be very grateful for that. Thanks to so many of our podcast listeners who've sent in incredible questions and thoughts and ideas to enable us to plan and prepare the podcast in the future going forward. Michael, you and I haven't touched base much this week, so it's great to be looking at you here as we uh, record this podcast, and we've got a pretty full program this week. We do. We do. We know that March is always a busy time, and this year, the March period coincides with the start of the holy month of Ramadan just this past week.
0: Absolutely. And we wish all our Muslim listeners Ramadan Mubarak. May you experience a happy and blessed Ramadan. That brings us into our theme for today, where we're going to be looking beyond food as food. I don't know if you thought about it, but food often provides us with a lot more than just the provision of so-called macro and micronutrients. Yes, beyond carbohydrates, fats and proteins, vitamins and minerals and various phyto or plant nutrients, our relationship with food is extremely complex. In health, food also provides us with physical, emotional and cognitive pleasure and satisfaction. Foodies turn food preparation and consumption into an art form, and food also fulfills many social, cultural and religious functions. And with that in mind, we introduce the concept of the fast of Ramadan and many people with diabetes participate in this fast. And it can be a challenging time during the year to attend to all the needs of managing one's chronic condition as well as to the spiritual aspects of life. Throughout history, fasting has always been one of the observances of pious people, and it's regarded as a practice for those who seek absolute truth. For Muslims, fasting during the month of Ramadan is regarded as a form of spiritual training. Muslims who fast during Ramadan must abstain from eating, drinking, the use of oral medications, and smoking from pre-dawn to after sunset. However, there are no restrictions on food or fluid intake between sunset and dawn. Most people consume two meals per day during this month, One after sunset referred to in Arabic as iftar, or the breaking of the fast meal, and the other before dawn referred to as suhur, the pre-dawn meal. Now, Stan, we have a number of medical risks that are possibly attendant on participating in this fast. Hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, dehydration, and maybe even clot formation in major blood vessels. Maybe chat to us about some of those risks and how we balance the the risks that may happen with the spiritual needs among our Muslim population. When you think about it, the plan for the fasting is in fact quite a difficult thing to do. And going into the Ramadan
1: period is in fact a sense of a planned participation. Mm. And very often in the course of diabetes over the lifespan, a person with diabetes will be able to plan ahead for certain phenomenon. You may need to plan ahead for your menstrual period. You need to plan ahead for a pregnancy, an elective operative procedure, and really getting the best kind of care and management of your diabetes in the run-up to that event. Look, there will be episodes where a person is unable to prepare. You may have a burst appendix, for example, but Ramadan really is a quintessential opportunity where planning is key. And if well thought through and planned together with your healthcare team, you are likely to have a safe and successful fasting period, which as I understand it, Michael, is in fact incredibly important for people who follow the Muslim faith from a social point of view. There may well be a lot of pressure upon people who don't fast, and you may need to uh, identify and justify perhaps why you're not fasting. And in the run-up to Ramadan, we could essentially look at a person who's about to fast as falling into a spectrum of of risk, risk for all of the harms that you had alluded to. You might be low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. And there are a number of tools that are available. Interestingly enough, the most current South African guidelines, which you and I have spoken about on virtually all of the podcasts that's up for revision, has a very nice in-depth section on the Ramadan period. And the healthcare team are going to use certain features of the person with diabetes to enable them to make a decision as to what their track record was through fasting, where their current medication is, and what their lived experience has been over previous fasting periods. And I think a key message for me as somebody who doesn't follow the Muslim faith is that it needs to be a joint decision-making process. You may well have a high-risk scenario, but I don't think it's exclusively the doctor's decision to say yay or nay. I think that the person with diabetes, their family, and perhaps those involved in the spiritual aspects of the community almost inevitably need to be involved in
0: that decision-making Hmm, That's a common theme throughout diabetes care, that of shared decision-making, and this extends to spiritual aspects of life and management of diabetes, too. Over the past few weeks, we've been introducing some essential tools for your journey in diabetes care. This week, we're going to talk about self-discipline. Essential Tools for Your Journey in Diabetes Care Whether you are a person living with diabetes, or a practicing health professional working in the field, these tools will help you along your way. Our fourth tool may seem really tough, but like most things in life, it gets easier the more we practice it. Let's talk about self-discipline. Gary Ryan Blair said that self-discipline is an act of cultivation. It requires you to connect today's actions to tomorrow's results. There's a season for sowing and a season for reaping. Self-discipline helps you know which is which. Today we often think of discipline almost as a swear word. We tend to associate it with hardship, pain and punishment to correct so-called disobedience. The origins of this word, however, stem from the systematic training of a person or discipling to do something in a controlled and habitual way for a craft, trade or particular way of life. Self-discipline is the ability to exert willpower over a desire to do or not to do something and decide not to take a path perceived more pleasurable or easier. It can partly substitute for poor motivation and help you to make better choices in opposition to your desires. The training of self-discipline helps you to develop the skills to know what is best and to do this gladly and almost instinctively without agonizing over the choice. Traits that result in self-discipline include willpower, hard work, and persistence. In most cultures, sports, arts, and professions, self-discipline is a prerequisite for success. If you have diabetes, managing the condition also requires self-discipline. In the regular, routine self-monitoring of blood glucose, taking of medication, choices to eat healthy foods more often consistent physical activity and visits to one's diabetes care team. This is particularly difficult for people who have not previously regarded self-discipline as an important value, and who thus lack the needed traits and skills. They may find it overwhelming to manage a chronic condition. So how do you develop self-discipline? Your diabetes care team is there to provide vital support and guidance to you. Talking to other people with diabetes in support groups and online communities can also be immensely helpful as they share their experiences, tips, and motivating factors. Never forget the value of a simple visual or written reminder in obvious places, like your bathroom mirror or fridge, to check your blood glucose, take your nighttime insulin, or even floss your teeth. Another vital tool is to keep a diabetes diary of your blood glucose values, foods eaten, medications taken, and any other relevant information. If you are a health professional who facilitates the management of diabetes, self-discipline helps one to practice proactively and preventatively to achieve optimal wellness and risk reduction, even in the absence of symptoms we are all trained to respond to in an acute care setting. Self-discipline will help one to keep comprehensive, longitudinal records of sentinel markers of risk, and to intensify or de intensify therapies according to risk in that individual, and not the appearance of acute or chronic complications, the outcome of a lazy approach to practice called clinical inertia. Harry S. Truman observed that, In reading the lives of great men, I found that the first victory they won was over themselves. Self-discipline with all of them came first. Now, coming out of that insert, I think we've got to be very careful that we don't interpret self-discipline as living a life constrained externally. It's more about balancing the need for self-discipline with the need to live a life well lived.
1: Michael, you know, I'm a, I'm a big foodie. I've trained as a, as a chef in, in my spare yes. time. Can't help but think when we think about food, some of the experiences we've had at congresses over the past couple of years, and, and two thoughts dropped into my head as we're talking here. The first is we had a lecture a couple of years ago from somebody who spoke on indigenous culture and eating amongst indigenous populations or first populations, as it were. And the, the funny thing that I remember from that was that, you know, we train slavishly people with diabetes to follow carbohydrate counting and to balance their insulin and carbohydrates. And here was a scenario where a group of people were sitting around around sharing a meal from a large platter, or you can almost think of a Bedouin feast and people helping themselves with their hands. How would you think about carbohydrate counting in that shared communal experience? And the other one we had was a fantastic lecture by a linguistic professor from UCT who spoke about risk of food and just incredible how the dynamics of food have become main a center stream and none mm-hmm. more so in the field of diabetes, which is why I love the theme that you've chosen for
0: today, that food is more than food. Absolutely. And I love that lecture, just thinking back to it, where the professor shared that in many cultures and many languages, there doesn't even exist the concept of risk, that in many cultures, there's a more fatalistic approach to life where things happen or don't happen to you. Whereas in the English language, the word risk implies that things may happen to you and that you do have some agency or control over it. So quite a nice nuance in language. I'm laughing as I think about it because she spoke about how risky eating the skin
1: of a chicken is. And absolutely, she spoke about that in Westernized society that uh, you should take the skin off the chicken because chicken skin is unhealthy and fattening. And she said, well, when she spoke to these indigenous populations, I said, well, how risky can chicken skin be if the chicken has the skin and is running around its entire life with the skin? You know, how bad can it be? And just that concept of purveying food. So we've spoken every single podcast about being mindful of our language. And again, mm. I would include how do you translate? that concept of risk. And again, it comes down to the fundamentals, good, solid language and awareness, good communication skills, healthcare providers having the right attitudes and behaviors to deliver really good diabetes management.
0: Absolutely. So to round off this insert on the Ramadan period, I found a nice meme out there on the internet that says, Ramadan preparation doesn't mean having enough pies, samosas, fritters and chicken lollies in the freezer. Ramadan preparation actually means increasing our recitation of the Quran, Dikr of Allah being more punctual with us Allah, being patient, trying to get closer to Allah. And I think that was quite a nice reminder of the spiritual aspects of the Ramadan period. And we need to balance that understanding with our approach to breaking the fast. And I think if we can keep that balance, which we often talk about in diabetes, we're on our way to a successful Ramadan fast. So continuing with our theme of beyond food as food, we'd like to go into when our relationship with food goes wrong. This can take various forms. We can indulge in comfort eating. Sometimes we want to fill an emotional hole or to provide comfort in the context of spiritual, physical, social, financial, or emotional pain or discomfort. Sometimes we're not happy with our body. This results in a phenomenon called body dissatisfaction or disorders in body image. Many times our relationship with food is disordered because we want to control Our intake of food is sometimes the only thing we feel that we can control in our lives. So we have a spectrum between healthy eating, where we mindfully consume a variety of foods when we're hungry and we're able to stop when full, moving through to disordered eating, which is where we find a lack of routine in eating, skipping meals making less healthy food choices, mindless eating or following fad diets, and moving on to eating disorders where there may be severe and persistent disturbances in our eating behaviors. You may have heard of eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. There's less common ones like night eating syndrome, avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder, food phobias, orthorexia nervosa, where we try and eat to maintain health. By trying to be healthy, we become unhealthy. And things like muscle dysmorphia, also known as bigger where young men especially go into gym and try and become as big as possible. So there's a whole spectrum of eating problems or disorders in our relationship with food. And with that theme in mind, we bring in our next studio guest, Renelle Foster. And Renelle has personal experience of her journey with food and relationship with food. And so I'd like to bring you in, Renelle, at this stage and to tell us a little bit about your life story and what we can learn as healthcare professionals how to approach people experiencing such problems, and also what you would maybe like to say to other people who are on that same journey. So Renelle, welcome to our podcast. We're glad to have you with us.
2: Hi there, thanks for having me.
0: Absolute pleasure. Go for it, Renelle.
2: As Michael mentioned, I'm Renelle Foster. I'm 43 years old. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the tender age of eight. I always look at kids of eight years old and I can't believe that at eight years old, a child can be burdened with something as big as diabetes, and it just makes me sad, and I almost see that younger version of myself as somebody completely separate of who I am today. And diabetes is such a huge thing to deal with at such a tender age. That yeah, it always makes me sad to see somebody and to think I was that small. I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was staying in Germany at the time. Um, my dad was a diplomat, and at that time, I mean that. That was 35 years ago. Diabetes was not as prevalent in the media as today. And plus there was a huge language barrier. My parents were very Afrikaans. So even English was difficult for them. And here I was their only daughter, the youngest of three. And I started losing a lot of weight and showing the classic symptoms of diabetes. They took me in and I still remember sitting in the doctor's consultation room and not knowing what was going on because I didn't understand the language. My parents hardly knew what was going on and they were given this devastating news. So from the beginning, it was traumatic for me. And my parents, my dad, especially, he was very strict with me when it came to my diabetes. I was on what was known as a biphasal insulin. So there was no short acting. You couldn't just eat something and inject for it to counteract your sugar levels. So... There were very strict eating times and there was very much a focus on good food and bad food. And if I have to think back where my eating disorder stemmed from, it was probably that focus on good foods and bad foods from such a young age. Also, I can clearly remember seeing my doctors and they would always weigh me. And it was always said in a tone, a voice, oh, I see you've picked up weight again, Renal, or you haven't picked up weight, good job. So there was always a focus on weight and food. And just from that young age, you know, children are meant to be free and have fun and eat to grow. But from that young age, it was always a focus on food. So I think that was probably where my eating disorder stemmed from. And as I said, my parents were strict with me. And so as you grow older, you go to birthday parties and you eat things on the sly, because of course you want that slice of cake that your friends are eating. But then you're terrified of what your parents are going to say, because it's obviously going to show up in your glucose reading. So in that way, it's almost like a natural process that I developed bulimia, because I would think, how can I get rid of this food so that I can still enjoy the food, but it won't show up in my glucose reading. So I started purging. And at the age of 17, that was when the real issues for me started. I believed I was fat. At that age, it's important for a girl to look good, feel good, looking good meant being thin. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know how the process of becoming diabulimic started. I don't know if it's something that I subconsciously don't want to remember. But when I looked again, I was very much diabulimic. Although initially that term was foreign to me. I thought I was crazy. I was being sly. I was being with regards to food. I thought I was the only one out there that could think up these ridiculous ways.
0: So, Renelle, you've brought up an interesting term called diabulimia. Could you explain that to our listenership? Because they may not know what it means. And it's regarded as probably the most dangerous eating disorder that you could have. And it's special to people with diabetes and who take insulin. Tell us why it is so dangerous and why it's so easy to get into.
2: So diapolemia is a condition that's prevalent in people with type 1 diabetes. And if I may say, because I've dealt with it myself, it's a crazy way in which people emit their insulin, which is as a person living with type 1 diabetes, that is your life-saving medicine. That is without it, you will die. And so the person with type 1 diabetes actually chooses to emit using their insulin in seeking that weight loss. So it is a very serious form of eating disorder where you omit using your insulin in the quest to lose weight. And although it sounds fantastic, I mean, basically you're running your sugars as high as possible because the higher your sugars run, the more weight you lose. So in essence, the more you eat, the more weight you lose because in eating more, you're running your sugars even higher. But the flip side of it is so serious and potentially fatal if you don't seek help as soon as possible, or if you don't have the support to get you through it.
1: We've spoken on these podcasts before about stigma associated particularly with the wearing of diabetes technology, but look what's happening here. There's a lot of stigma about weight. And even in the pre-adolescent years, adolescent years in your experience, and again, even the older person with more typical type 2 diabetes is going to have an assessment or judgment rather made on the scale. And it's almost sounding inappropriate that weighing somebody at a visit may in fact be a harmful practice to undertake. Mm. We're after these metrics, and we've had our guest last week, Kirsten, who spoke about only a focus on the numbers when you go into the doctor office. But here, this number on the scale was a trigger factor for a young, vulnerable person, enough on her plate already with early onset type 1 diabetes, and now being praised or reprimanded, rather, uh, when her weight fluxes. Ronelle, when did you realize that trouble was Yeah, because you've identified the behaviors that you had pursued, but when did you know that it was getting a little bit, hey, this is looking unsafe now?
2: The crazy thing with eating disorders is that you actually know from the beginning what you're doing is wrong, but it's that praise that you receive from people. Oh, you're looking so good. Oh, I see you've lost a bit of weight that fuels you to carry on. So from the beginning, you know what you're doing is wrong and you carry that guilt and that shame every single time you do it. It's a serious mental issue. It's a disordered way of thinking and you just carry on. But the problem is in the beginning, you think you're in control, but at some point you realize, and that point for me was when I started picking up serious complications and I had problems with my vision. I had problems with neuropathy, which was very painful to deal with. For those of you that don't know, diabetes really affects every part of you. And if your sugars are running, Uncontrolled, you pick up vision problems, you pick up very painful issues with your nervous system, with your nerves, you pick up problems with your kidneys. There's so many issues that you pick up along the way and these are not reversible. And when I started picking up these complications, I realized what I was doing was absolutely fatal and my life became more and more difficult to deal with. I mean, diabetes in itself is difficult from the start, Mm. but Mm. complications added to the story make it even more difficult and more disheartening and everything in the end influences your psyche. But the strange thing is that the eating Eating disorder was even more powerful than these complications. So I would pick up retinopathy. I had the issue sorted out with laser therapy. And yet through all of that, I carried on with the eating disorder. And important thing that that I just must say is that, that you think you're on this path on your own, but you are not at all. In my case, it was my parents, and later on in life, it was my husband. They suffer even more to a certain extent than you do, because they see firsthand To me, I looked stunning. I was thin. You know, there's that terrible saying about you can never be too thin or too rich. And I thought being thin was the ultimate. And I was ridiculously thin. I'm not going to mention numbers here because for people out there struggling with this, even that number can be a trigger because I would read about so-and-so weighs this much and I would think, oh, but they weigh less than me. So that was a trigger, which I saw it as competition. I have to weigh more. I have to weigh the least in my group of friends. But your spouse or your parents see the weight that you're losing and they talk to you about it, but you deny it. And what can they do? What can your doctor do? They can see what you're up to. Maybe they even know what you're up to. Maybe they even address it. But what can they really do if you yourself are not willing to accept that you're essentially killing yourself and make that change to get better. And let me tell you, it's damn difficult to get better and to get out of that rut or that habit.
1: Powerful story. I mean, as you say, damn difficult. Your story dovetails very well into a movement that Michael and I have become much more familiar with over the last couple of years. And that's the health at every size, the weight neutral movement, where it's inappropriate to assess health based on a person's body weight, which unfortunately, and I suppose social media has a part to play in this, has kind of been promoted. You're lean, you're healthy and well. And here you are, you're lean, you're unhealthy, you're unwell, and your diabetes is already beginning to show up with particular complications. What's interesting for me, Michael and Renel is that because food is so central to the management of diabetes, counting carbohydrates and whatnot, as part of the teaching that was inevitably brought about, eating disorders probably are in full view, but they're there in stealth. And I guess they're not being picked up often enough. So Ronell, my question for you is, were you ever confronted by a healthcare provider? Were you ever questioned or asked about your concerns about eating and deliberate withholding of insulin? I'm interested to know, because these are difficult conversations to have with people of any age.
0: And what I'd like to know is, did your healthcare provider just keep pushing up your insulin dosages because your HbA1c was high and they didn't see the problem?
2: I was never aware of the term diabulimia. And obviously, my doctors could see my sugars were running high. I don't know if they weren't aware of the eating disorder because it was never brought up in a consultation with my doctor. The first time I became aware of the term and that I wasn't alone on this journey was on the internet. I came across a Facebook group, a UK Facebook group, and it was a bunch of girls my age, and they were all diabulimics. I must say that really helped me because for the first time, I realized that I wasn't alone. There were other people out there that had the same crazy thoughts. I thought I was the only one that thought about emitting insulin in order to lose weight. So the answer is no. My diabetic practitioners never spoke to me about deliberately withholding my insulin. They thought it was anorexia or bulimia, and I was treated for that at a rehab facility, but the diabulimia never came up.
0: I've seen that clinically so often where I've consulted with a young woman often, that can be young men, but a person who has crazy high insulin dosages for their body weight because we generally calculate it according to what you would need per kilogram of body weight and you can see immediately this person's dosages they would be enough to drop a cart horse and you're dealing with someone who's a very slight body build And yet the practitioner has just kept on pushing up those dosages and they don't seem to make that connection. So I think from me, it's a call to practitioners out there. If you're seeing massively increased insulin dosages and high HbA1c, you've got to start thinking along the roads of intentional insulin emission. And that can be for many reasons. One of it is, of course, diabulimia. Another one can be just because I'm terrified of hypoglycemia, but never fall into that trap of seeing a high HbA1c and not understanding that the person may be in fact missing their insulin.
2: In all fairness, I was being so sly But I can't remember the doctors pushing up my insulin dosage. I'm sure they did. But I would see my doctor and I would just lie. The doctor would say, are you injecting what you should? And yes, of course I am. And it wouldn't make sense to them. And how can they, to my face, say, but you're lying? I suppose they should have. But it was so difficult for them to actually know what was going on because everything that came out of my mouth was a lie. I think the story at the end of the day is you actually use a formula to determine the insulin dosage.
0: Approximately, yes. And
2: if the insulin dosage seems completely bizarre, then you almost need to know that there's something up. This person is not being truthful about what's going on. But I must say as a child as well, I was in, very much in denial of being diabetic and with the eating disorders even more so. But when I started realizing I needed help, there was one doctor, he was the first doctor and I actually admitted to him that I was emitting insulin and that I was bulimic at the same time. And just to add onto what Stan said earlier about he not realizing how being weighed can be such a trigger. So what this doctor did, and I really appreciated it at the time, was that he would weigh me, but he would actually weigh me with my back to the scale. So he would, in a quiet tone of voice, just get me to step onto the scale and I wouldn't actually see the numbers. And he would never even make a noise like, gosh, or anything like that. He would just say, thank you. And I would step down and that would be it. And he would note my weight, but he never used to actually make any comment on it. And I wouldn't actually see the numbers. So that in a sense also was very helpful. And I really appreciated him doing that just to take my issue into regard.
0: You brought up a very important thing there, what actions the healthcare practitioner can take to maybe get into your space and to be therapeutic on your behalf. Just need to make clear that especially in young people, measurement of height and weight is an important part of overall good care. What we must avoid at all costs is attaching a judgment to the results. So very important in a young person below 18 years old, we follow what's called a growth curve and that's individual for each person. And we want to see for your health that you're following that growth curve, but we need to avoid that judgment. And you showed how much you value that doctor's approach to the measurement of your weight. What else could healthcare practitioners do to enter the world of someone living with diabulimia and maybe to make contact with your reality and to get you on a road back to more healthy ways of approaching eating? And I assume the implication is that you have made a turn in your life journey. Tell us about that turn and what were the factors that made it easier for you?
2: So in terms of how a doctor could be more sensitive, it's so difficult because a doctor, in my opinion, is there not to prescribe medicine, but what I would have needed was somebody to be more of a buddy, almost like a buddy system. And that's what I would love to be for anybody out there, just somebody that they know has gone through the same struggles and everything that I've been through that you can just talk on a peer level almost, no judgment because I've been there. And I think that's difficult for a doctor to do because they haven't gone through it. So you almost need like a buddy system where I can call up somebody at any time of day when I feel like I need help now because stress was a huge factor for me as well. Mm -hmm. Not so much with the diabulimia, but that triggered my bulimia because the bulimia was a sense of relief every time I purge. But it's difficult for a doctor. I think it's more a case of having a support system, somebody outside of your family that you can chat to on a peer level that can just be there to give personal advice and how they've experienced the same emotions and feelings and issues that you're going through. So I think that form of support is absolutely vital. It's such a difficult thing because I saw many psychologists, I saw many psychiatrists. And the thing is that if you don't want to help yourself, nobody else is going to be able to help you. And to find that point where you want to help yourself, where you want to get better, that's different for everyone. For me, it was, like I said, I had several diabetes complications, but the final blow was going into full-blown kidney failure. And I went on to dialysis for a year and eight months, which I will not wish upon anybody because it was a nightmare. I didn't cope well with it. I didn't want to accept it. Basically, dialysis involves being hooked up to a machine that cleans your blood for you because your kidneys are no longer able to do so. I was hooked up to that machine for four hours, three days a week. It disrupts your entire life. It basically works out to every second day of the week you go to dialysis. In between those sessions, you feel terrible. So your whole life is just disrupted. And I was basically sitting and waiting for a suitable donor to come along. It also happened to me, this was about four years ago, during COVID times. So the likelihood of finding a suitable donor was even worse during those times because of COVID, because it immediately eliminated anybody that had COVID because of the little research that had been done on COVID. By the absolute grace of God, my husband, and I get very emotional speaking about this, my husband was a perfect match. I had asked one of my siblings and for his own personal reasons, he wasn't willing to go through the very strict testing because besides finding a suitable donor, they also have to be suitable in terms of their health and for them to maintain their lifestyle after the kidney transplant. So there is a whole bunch of stringent testing that both I and in this case, my husband had to go through and there were obstacles along the way, but we both passed and the transplant was a huge success. It was an absolute miracle. And my life after the transplant has changed so dramatically. And that is why this advocacy on diabolemia is so incredibly important for me because I've been the before and I'm now experiencing the after. And if I have to think back to the before and what I did, was the diabolemia worth it? Was the weight loss, was being thin worth it? And the answer is absolutely, if I may say so, hell no because a part of diabolemia as well. So you're looking thin, in your opinion, you're looking great, but you're feeling so terrible that you can't go out with your friends. In all other aspects of your life, you can't join in with your friends. You just don't have the energy. So you're looking great, like I said, in your opinion, but you can't join in with your friends in doing normal people things. You basically sitting at home, feeling terrible, feeling without energy, sleeping all the time. So in that sense, it's not worth it at all. Post-transplant, I've got so much energy. I never knew I didn't have the energy until post-transplant. My husband often wishes that I would just calm down because (laughs) I've been given a new lease on life. And I often say to my husband, and he just tells me, but you can't think like that. I often feel like I have to make up for the past 40 years of my life, where I wasn't able to do what I can now because I simply didn't have the energy. I've found new passions, art, new sports that I wasn't even aware of that I had any inkling of wanting to do. That I'm now at the age of 43 getting involved in, and it's just life as it should be. And I honestly wasn't living while I was diabulimic or at the height of my eating disorders. It's that simple. And And I just want people to realize that it's just not worth it. And I am living proof that you don't have to stay there. I honestly thought that while I was at the height of my eating disorder, I couldn't get out of it. I didn't know I was stuck in that rut where I thought this is going to kill me and it would have. And it took something as dramatic as a kidney transplant to make me realize that I can. And because it's my husband as well, I will never, ever go back to what I used to do because it's no longer just me. He made a huge sacrifice in donating a kidney and I will never, ever take that for granted.
1: Your husband sounds like the cheerleader you needed back in the day, you spoke about meeting that group on the social media sense, but in essence, he's been your biggest backer, literally. And the person who's taken the next level, he's been involved in the after portion of that. And it's fabulous to hear that the narrative has this really, really positive, I wouldn't say end because you're in good health now and many years still to come. You touched on a very important aspect, which I think is important in reflecting on people with diabetes, because you, you spoke about this fatigue. In your case, there was a physical contribution, the dialysis getting up early, virtually every second day of the week. But, you know, Michael, we've spoken about it in the past, tiredness and fatigue and decision-making fatigue are all aspects that stalk people with diabetes, type 1, type 2 diabetes. And I think this week's insert from Sweet Life touches on this topic, in fact, very nicely.
2: Here's what people with diabetes wish you knew. It can be really exhausting. Decision fatigue is real, very real. And having to make the right decisions over and over again, having to choose the right food, Having to inject if you're injecting before you eat. Having to test your blood glucose even when you don't feel like it. Having to exercise even when you don't feel like it. I know that more and more people are talking about diabetes burnout now, which is its own special form of mental health and diabetes. But it's very, very real. And I think a lot of that comes from feeling like we should be making the right decisions all the time. Even though people without diabetes definitely aren't making the right decisions all the time. So maybe just keep that in mind next time you're seeing someone who seems tired. We really have very good reason to be tired sometimes.
0: Thank you so much to Sweet Life for your continued advocacy efforts. A great message again this week. Brunella, as we wind down this fantastic session we've had with you today, I'm curious to know where you
1: are now with your relationship with food and your body looking back.
2: So, I think what's important to realize with eating disorders is that it is a mental condition. And one's head is so strong. so, Although it's gotten much better, I will always have that kind of love-hate relationship with food because of the fact that I am very much still diabetic. So there will always be that focus on food. But now when I eat, I enjoy my food. There's no more sly eating. If I want a piece of cake, I'll say to my husband, listen, I'm craving something nice. You know, let's just make something special out of it. Let's go to the coffee shop and I'll inject for it. And there's a much healthier relationship with food. There are days that I get up and I still feel fat. I might look in the mirror and I'll think, gee, I feel fat today. And I'll even say to my husband, because we've now built up that type of relationship where I can say to him, listen, I just feel fat. And then he being the awesome support that he is and support is so important. He'll say, but you look great and let's just go out. Let's do something fun, whatever it might be. For me, it was also art and just getting out of your head, however that might be for you. So it takes a while to get out of that disordered thinking. And I just like to reiterate that I will always think about what I eat. It's not like I've now gone to the other side where I'll just eat and not think about it. But I have a much healthier relationship with food. My uncle once said, you shouldn't live to eat. You should eat to live. And that in a sense is true, but I also believe eating should be something that you enjoy doing. And that is what I try to, my husband and I will go out to to coffee shops and enjoy eating and make more of a outing of it
0: Of course, and that ties in with our theme today that food is more than just food. It's more than supplying energy and building blocks for our bodies, but it is a source of pleasure and social and spiritual interaction amongst human beings. So we must never forget that. And I think dieticians who are trained in diabetes are very well aware of that approach, that the pleasure of eating should always be regarded
2: highly. For our listeners out there that might be struggling with diabolinia, it's not going to be easy. The road to recovery is not easy. But maybe can I ask you just to try, if you're omitting all of your insulin, try to inject just once a day to start off with. If you're underdosing, try to inject just one or two units more so that one day when you're older and perhaps wiser, you don't regret any bad decisions that you may have made.
1: Thank you, Renelle. Rinald, I appreciate so much that you touched base with us and made contact mm. with us. I wonder if there are listeners out there who want to share similar stories with us and, and share their experiences and possibly their own support structures and what got them to a better healthy space. Remember, our listeners can email us at podcast at cdediabetes.coza. And the podcasts are brought to you weekly and available free for download on several social media platforms, including Anchor and Spotify. Michael, it's been a great session. Lovely to have an in-studio guest with us and really to hear those heartfelt truths, which on reflection tell us that managing diabetes at any age across the lifespan is not an easy thing to always do. And the message for me for the take-home today is that support from beginning to end is really going to make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. In this case, very personal support at the level of Renell's husband, perhaps your healthcare team, perhaps a family member and whatnot. But I get the sense that you're going to do it. You need that buddy by your side or your guide by the side rather. You know, we've moved away from an education component where we always used to speak about the sage on the stage, the wise person telling anybody what to do. Now you want that guide walking with you, there with you. If you stumble, somebody there to support you. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, these stories that we're hearing really make the management of diabetes much more real and enabling me as a healthcare provider to support my own patients in their journey. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for this week's podcast. We will be back next week. Have a great week ahead. And for those of you who are fasting during the holy month of Ramadan, may it be both a meaningful and a safe fast for you as you go forward over the next several weeks. Till next time.
0: And from me, Michael, thank you again for joining us. And to Renal, we thank you for your amazing words of wisdom to us. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers for people with diabetes, The health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!